1: Thanks for joining us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I know that we're going to have a really fun show today because we've spent the last ten minutes in this studio before you all were able to join us talking about a lot of what we're going to discuss on the show. And man, the conversation got really interesting. Uh, So let me get right to it. Um, We're joined today by Senator Jen Jordan, who um, we're going to talk with you about a lot of the the topics uh, that we're going to cover today, uh, Jen. But obviously want an update from you on sterogenics. You've been leading the fight to uh, uh, make sure the state is holding them accountable in the best way possible. And we'll get to the lawsuit that you've now filed on that a little later in the show. But in the meantime, thanks so much for being here. No, happy to be here. You're sitting across from Cody Hall, as you know. Uh, Governor Kemp's press secretary. Cody's been on the show a number of times before, and we're always glad to welcome you back. Thanks for being here, Cody. And glad to be here. Patricia Murphy is here. Patricia worked on Capitol Hill for Georgia Senators Max Cleland and First for uh, Senator Sam Nunn. She's a journalist, gone back into a role. She's in a role as a journalist now. She has a syndicated column. You can read her in Roll Call. You can read her... You're not doing quite as much for Daily Beast, I don't think.
2: Not as much, but, you know, Georgia is now the focus of national attention. Yeah, so, so I think oh. I'll get back into that pool yeah, soon. Yeah, you're
1: going to be really um, popular, I would think, in terms of the work you do. Um, we're not going to talk about gun control today, but I always like to point out your most recent column in Roll Call. I think I'm right that the most recent one is on the what we're we might expect or not expect from gun control the headline sort of says it all with washington missing in action walmart for president um so we'll post a link to that uh column people should read it and then when we f- finally have a chance to talk gun control they'll be prepared yes. thank
2: you yes
1: all right let's get right to a conversation about the senate race because there's been a development uh, jen not a terribly surprising development but uh john Asoff who, of course, made national headlines in his race against Karen Handel last year, raised record amounts of money in that contest and lost to Karen Handel by a fairly small margin, uh, finally announced last night, early this morning, he is in the race. And he says, Jen, he's in what we're calling race number one, the race to uh, unseat David Perdue. Yeah?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's been kind of... Um not a well-guarded secret that he was looking at jumping in. Um, the question for me had been, once Isaacson made his announcement, um, would he switch mm. to the Isaacson race? And um, and he didn't. Um, so surprisingly, he's kind of jumped into the Purdue race, which is, is starting to become a fairly crowded field.
1: Um, John is going to be on our show tomorrow uh, for the first segment of the show. I point out that we have now had every time a a, a candidate announces for Senate, we have given them an opportunity to come in. We've had Teresa Tomlinson, uh, Ted Terry, Sarah Amico. So this is uh, just being fair about all this. Um, Patricia, I'm going to play you a soundbite. Stephen Fowler, our uh, political reporter at GPB Radio, talked to John today. Let's listen to just a little bit of what Asaf told him, and then I want to get your feedback
3: I've spent the last six years of my life attacking and exposing corruption and the abuse of power all over the world. And I believe that if we do not mount an all-out attack on corruption in American politics right now, we will lose this democracy. And David Perdue is the spitting image of
1: Washington corruption. Patricia, react.
3: Well,
2: (laughs) I think um, the corruption... Angle is very smart for Democrats. That is uh, the angle that pulls uh, most strongly against President Trump. Um, I don't know that it pulls as strongly uh, against David Perdue. They're going to have to do some work on that mm-hmm. uh, to to take kind of to take that all the way to the polls. Um, I've been skeptical about. Ossoff in the past because he did spend $30 million and still lost by three points in um, that Georgia Sixth, which was uh, which a Democrat won very shortly thereafter. Um, however, I spoke with some activists in uh, the district and uh, around the state earlier today um, who were excited about Ossoff and uh, feel like he has um, gotten out a first time, gotten some experience under his belt, would be strong. Um, for I will say he has a gigantic online presence mm. the daily costs which is a website uh, based in California very popular with progressives is just a spigot of money for liberal candidates and also has a has a very strong relationship with them. He announced last night on MSNBC in their primetime, which not every candidate can do. So he has a lot of strengths going into this structurally that other Democrats Wait don't a minute. have. He's
1: not taking time away from Stacey Abrams on the cable shows, is he, Patricia? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a busy
2: green room for Georgia Democrats.
1: <laughs> you know, Cody, I you're here. I mean, obviously, we have a partisan view on Ossoff and other Democrats in the race. But I also want to ask you a question uh, from your perspective as a press secretary. I've There was a time, Patricia, you'll probably uh, want to weigh in on this as well. Um, there was a time when a candidate for a statewide office in any given state would want to make sure that it was his local media that got the first opportunity to talk to her or Him
2: now, in fairness, the AJC broke it about an hour before his appearance. Well,
1: yes, yes, they did, mm -hmm. but it was embargoed until then. Yes, and and his first splash came on what I don't know what called a network show, but a a national uh cable show. I just find it interesting the way things have shifted in terms of how we uh how candidates use media these days.
3: And Bill, you kind of stole my thunder. That was going to be my point that I find find it malpractice that you're running for a statewide office in Georgia and your first um, TV appearance is in New York on MSNBC. Um, That is not the constituency that's going to win you the race. Now it may appeal to some folks in your primary, but I actually think that that's something that to go back to 18 or 2018, um, our campaign was very good about prioritizing local press. Um, across the state, that I think was a weakness of the Abrams campaign. So, in a primary, yes, it may help you, um, but you've got to be very careful that sometimes a quote-unquote well-friendly interviewer from your well-partisan perspective can get you in a lot of trouble in a general election atmosphere
1: um but jen and of course it can also help you uh raise national money which have did such a very good job of last time out and we don't want to single him out this is happening it's a phenomenon that Stacey abrams certainly uh played that card
0: look it's about the money i mean at the end of the day um he's in a crowded crowded primary. He's getting in a little bit late. Um, He is going to have to juice whatever contacts he has, um, his list, whatever, kind of at the national level, in order to get the money to actually, you know, kind of make it through the primary. It doesn't really matter in terms of the general if, if you can't make it out and you can't actually, you know, have the dollars in the bank to communicate to people. So my guess is because he had been such a national figure before, because of that race, that he decided that this was the way to go in terms of getting the biggest fundraising bump um, from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, all that said, he's done a very good job today. He's talking to local media here in Atlanta today. So, again, I don't want to make too much of it. But, Patricia, as I said, it's an interesting change from what I'm certainly used to when I was— really covering politics and not just blabbing on the radio about politics. <laughs> well, we used
2: to think about what beautiful local backdrop can we do? There and, ha- you, you know, almost like a ribbon cutting on the campaign. Maybe it's where you grew up. Maybe it's your high school, you know, but that seems very quaint these days. It seems very <laughs> old fashioned and boring. <laughs>
1: um, so let me stay with you for a minute, Patricia, and then I'll let everybody else weigh in. What is Ossoff's presence do to uh, shaping race number one, where, as I said, you've got Teresa Tomlinson jumped in first, Ted Terry followed Sarah Amico, uh, and now Assoff. Does it? How does it change the dynamics of the race, if at all?
2: Well, it's just really crowded. I yeah. mean, I think I don't notice major policy differences between these candidates. Um, also, i tried to be a little bit... Um, not, either nondescriptive or non-committal on a lot of positions when he was running in the 6th. I'll be interested to see if he tightens that up um, to appeal to a statewide audience. But so far, th- they're not real different in terms of policy, but it does make the race number one feel very crowded and race number two very lonely for yeah. Democrats who don't have one person announced.
1: And I want to ask you about that in a couple minutes. But before I do, Jen, uh, during the race last year, saw. Ossoff- kind of vacillated on whether he thought this was a contest pitting him essentially against Donald Trump and the policies of Donald Trump. And he ended up uh, pretty much deciding that uh, he really should not—that he wanted to try to win crossover voters, and so he didn't get as harsh— Uh, Harshly critical of Trump in the general, as he might have. I wonder this time around whether that's going to change.
0: Well, I think we've already seen it. I mean, I think right out of the box, um, he clearly learned his lesson that he should have made his race about Donald Trump when he ran for Congress because he may would have won and and overcome those three points. I mean, I don't think people like noncommittal. I think folks want to know what you stand for. They they want to know that they can depend on your word, and they want to see authenticity. And um, and so I think he did learn from his other race. And I think right out of the box, we you know he may be talking about David Perdue, but really he's saying Donald Trump. And you know it looks to me like all he's going to be doing is trying to say that Donald Trump and David Perdue are one and the same. If you don't like one, then you can't like the other.
1: Well, Cody. It, it it's not a stretch to say Donald Trump and David Perdue are one and the same, because let's face it, David Perdue has locked himself to President Trump throughout uh, his tenure, uh, both of their tenures in Washington. Um, we haven't seen any polling in Georgia. You may have internal polling on this. But we haven't seen anything really recent about how Trump's approval ratings are doing right here in Georgia. Um, don't you think, as a Democrat, he's got to make try to make the case against Trump? And if, if he does that, is he going to uh, have some success? So, yes, I think he has to.
3: Um, now, whether or not he's going to have any, you know, win there, I'll leave it to next November to tell us that. Um, but I do think it's actually turning out to be about as good of a field as Purdue could have hoped for, um, because I think when, when you look at the field, Amico. Um, her business just declared bankruptcy. Ted Terry's kind of a younger Bernie Sanders kind of feel to him, very left wing. Um, and Mayor Tomlinson, she was in the race for three months, raised $500,000 um, and then said, by the end of this race, I'm going to have to raise $22 million. Um, and now you have the guy who lost the most expensive U.S. house race um, in history. So, I think it's actually a pretty good field for the Purdue team. Um, obviously, you any candidate running is going to have to make the case to voters why they should be sent back to whatever job they they had. Yeah, um, and that's going to be based on his his voting record. And I think it's also going to be based on the fact that we finally have relief for. A lot of Georgia farmers in South Georgia um, that were hurting after Hurricane Well, Michael. we're
1: waiting to see just how that will come through. By the way, Patricia, I certainly did not mean to suggest that Ossoff's the one guy in the Democratic field who's going to run against Trump. They're all going to have to run against Trump. So the, the really the question is how successful can a Democrat be in the Purdue in race number one running against Trump?
2: Yeah, and how can they differentiate themselves from each other yes. if they're all going to be against President Trump? What's the difference between any of these people? Yeah, um, and I think that Democrats, in a lot of ways, national Democrats are eager to honestly have a woman uh, come forward in a number of these races, um, and so Asaf starts. I mean, that's never going to change, <laughs> you know. So he's going to have to distinguish himself in some capacity if he is running against Trump and he is going to be more progressive. Where does that leave him? I do think it was very interesting that right out of the box, John Lewis has already endorsed John Ossoff. Well, of
1: course, Ossoff was on his staff as a young uh, staffer on Capitol Hill, right? So there is a connection there. For sure.
2: Yes, there was a connection there. But that's a very, very important Strong. endorsement, yeah. especially on the first day. Yeah. Um, also, in his announcement video, he featured Stacey Abrams, and it raises the question of what will be her role in any of these campaigns. It's very audacious to have her in your video if you are not expecting some sort of endorsement to come forth. Do you,
1: um, Jen? If you do, you really think that Stacey Abrams wants to jump into the primary and make an endorsement here? No. Yeah, I don't see any advantage for her to do that. And if she's not going to, then Patricia's right. It's a pretty audacious move on Hasselhoff's part to put her into uh, her his uh, first uh, video of the campaign. Well,
0: I mean, he he used. Her words. I mean, it's yeah. kind of it's interesting. Not not most Democrats actually have video footage of Stacey Abrams, you know, basically saying how how what a great job he did and what a great candidate he was. Um, obviously, that was intended for for a certain point in time, and people know that. Um, but you know, it's it's fair game.
3: I just want to say that having worked against her team, there's, in my opinion, no way that Ossoff would have used that footage without
1: clearing it with Abrams' team.
0: Mm, that's interesting
1: interesting well we're going to watch how that unfolds um so jen help me with this we talked about this a little before the show went on we have two races we we before johnny isaacson uh, made his surprise announcement that he'd retire at the end of the year we already had teresa tomlinson cool. and ted and ted terry as declared candidates in that race against david purdue after Johnny made his announcement, Sarah Amico rather quickly announced that she too would seek the Isaacson seat in the Senate, not the, um, or, I mean, the Purdue seat in the Senate, not the open seat that comes up when Johnny Isaacson steps down. Now we have Assoff apparently saying he too is running against David Purdue. I've been having trouble wrapping my head around why it's better for a Democrat at this point, knowing there's an open seat, to decide to go after David Perdue rather than go for the open seat. Do you have any theories
0: on that? Well, I mean, there, there are just some practicalities. One is, um, you know who you're running against in the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have no idea when Governor Kemp will make his pick. Um, and so that's problematic in terms of, thinking, you know, gaming that out in terms of a variable, but probably just from a more practical standpoint, you have to run for reelection in 22. And then even apart from that, more likely than not, you'll get thrown into a runoff and on January 5th. And we know that historically, historically, Democrats have not performed very well in runoff. So if you're doing kind of this cost-benefit analysis of which race should I get into or which race do I feel more comfortable, I mean, you would definitely really look at the Purdue race because then you get a full six-year term. You don't have a runoff. um, You know exactly who you're running against um, after primary. You don't have
1: a general election runoff. Right. You don't have
0: a general election runoff, and then you're ready to go.
1: Patricia, weigh in on that.
2: Well, I think Senator Jordan knows of what she speaks. Yeah. I mean, I think those are that's all completely legitimate. Um I think it also um makes it because it is does seem to be keeping a lot of Democrats out of that Isaacson race um, of race number two, it makes, uh, I don't know if it's a strategy of Governor Kemp's, but it certainly doesn't help Democrats to not know who they would be running against mm-hmm. if he were to appoint somebody. And I think that's the biggest unknown and the biggest challenge if, it, if he ends up going with a big surprise and your big plan had been to run against President Trump and here's somebody who's not especially partisan or not especially um, easy to take shots. At, it becomes a really different calculus. Well,
1: Cody, uh, is it a strategy of your boss, the governor? <laughs>
2: oh, here you are
1: to right. uh, hold uh, withhold an announcement uh, so that it does keep Democrats a little up in the air.
3: I'll be honest. So um, we found out about the resignation. Um, um, I guess, well, publicly about ten thirty a couple of weeks ago. And later that day was the first press conference we did on the hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, so since that time, um, we've been preoccupied with making sure that our emergency agencies are, are fully equipped to deal with that. So I would like to say that there's a grand strategy at play. Um, but really what the governor is going to do from here on out is, is take his time. Um, that's just who he is um, when, when picking someone for such an important job. Someone that would have to potentially run in three elections over two years. You want to make sure that that person um, has the fire in the belly um, to do that um, and would serve the people of Georgia in the best way.
1: You know, Jim Galloway has made an interesting point on this show a couple of times now about that open seat race, which is right. If you, Just to remind listeners about the, where we stand in all this. The special election for Johnny Isaacson's seat will, in fact, your your boss has said it for the same day as the general election next year. So we will, as we've been talking about, elect two senators next November. Um, and and because the Isaacson seat is actually going to be on the ballot in 2022 when his term would actually expire, Galloway has made the point several times. Your boss is essentially picking a running mate for his <laughs> re-election campaign in 2022.
3: I think that's an interesting way to look at it. What I would say is don't put the cart before the horse. Um, you have an election in 2020 and a runoff that you'd have to get through. Um, those are the first two considerations. Um, and, and look, I don't think the calculus really changes all that much between the three elections. Number one, the person has to be able to win all three. Um, and I don't think that the turnout... Or the money
1: question really changes between any of those three. Do we have any sense? I mean, Isaacson steps down December 31st before then, but he won't be there in 2020. Any sense of when we might hear from your boss about a replacement?
3: And so, Bill, I came here today ready to say that there is a short list and it's a list of people who are not interested in, in being appointed. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. But what I, He's been ready with that <laughs> That's line. <a> good line. <laughs> but I would say that, look, um, our team is, has talked about making sure that if there is a timeline, when we reach the point that there is one, we let everybody know.
1: Okay, the one other quick thing, then. I've given your sure. joke, which is a good one. Uh, how – give us just some insight. Sure. I mean, who – I don't want – how, how crazy is it in terms of people calling your office and saying, me, 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 me? So I was with
3: the governor going to an event the day that we learned, um, and the amount—he uh, didn't put down his phone for the entire day, um, and, and that is now spilled over into staff. But I mean, you know, it's a good and kind of overwhelming thing. Um, obviously, the overwhelming part is getting all of these requests, um, but the good thing is that we have a deep bench in Georgia. Of Republicans who are qualified, um, and and people we may, we may not even be thinking about or talk about on shows like these that would be interesting.
1: Jen, I am. I've got to say, I'm kind of proud of the fact that uh, o- Political Rewind has assembled a group of panelists, a rotating group of panelists, who are uh, significant players in politics on both sides of the aisle. And what that's meant is that right now, especially on the Democratic side, we've had to ask any number of people, like we should ask you, about whether you have any thought about jumping into uh, the Senate race now that we have two contests on the ballot.
0: Look, any Democrat mm. who cares about mm. this country and this state is looking at that race. Um, vacancies do not come open often, um, and especially in a presidential year where there is so much energy and there seems to be so much at stake. Um, so, you know, I am looking seriously at it, as is about a thousand other Democrats <laughs> in this state.
1: Uh, Patricia, that's interesting uh, because most of the people who are being asked that question right now are being a little bit more reticent than Jen Jordan. But that isn't kind of surprising. She's made her career by being willing to sort of be bold in the way she speaks about the politics of the day.
2: Yes, I um <laughs> congratulate you (laughs) it's harder for others um i and you know speaking of exactly the same thing i attended a lucy mcbath town hall on sunday as a journalist covering it of course and uh, she was asked very directly by a voter what are you going to do in 2020 and i was very surprised at how little of an answer she offered um which to me was an answer and it's you know she said I will tell you that I'm invested in you.
1: <laughs>
0: and, the, and
2: there were some confused faces. She said, I'm invested in you. Yeah, And so that was 100% not a no. I And she is thinking about it. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I think uh, for Democrats in Washington, she is an attractive candidate for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is that They do think she could raise quite a bit of money, and she does have a national profile because of um, her uh, time so far in Congress. Uh, But there are a number of Democrats that, you know, we've heard that the Democrats have no bench. Uh, There are a lot of names uh, circulating who are, to me, very— Strong and would be really interesting dynamic candidates, mm-hmm. quite aggressive. And it's the first time that I can remember that I don't have to get on a plane and leave town to cover a really interesting Senate race. Wow.
1: It, it, which, by I know you want to jump in and we'll let you do that, but it, everything Patricia just said argues in favor of why your boss ought to be giving very careful consideration to a woman or a minority candidate. Yeah. I
3: think the governor's going, he's going to consider all options. Oh, um, my I'm God. I'm not going to box him in G- here on this You know, Cody, show. just leave
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that, um,
3: and Senator Jordan's response to the question was a whole lot better than Congresswoman McBath's um, as, a, as a comms person. Um, but I think that there's one aspect here that um, needs to be noted, that in the 2018 election, there was obviously a primary on the Democratic side in, in the governor's race, but it was really over probably by January or February of 2018. Um, it looks like, um, at least in the Purdue race, that the Democrat is not going to have that luxury of, of running from January to August, really the first or second week of August by the time the Republican really got their feet under them in our runoff. They're not going to have that much time to essentially build a war chest go fly to other states in the country raise money from billionaires and then come back to the state ready to go to war they're gonna have a bruising primary they're probably gonna have an equally bruising runoff um, and this time, Purdue and the appointee that the governor would choose will not have to deal with those okay. kind of characteristics. Uh, in the race. Cody, you
1: get the last word on uh, this segment, uh, and because of that, we, when we come back, we'll ask you to narrow down the field for us. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's take our first break, and when we come back, we'll move on to a number of other subjects that are on the political radar today. This is Political Rewind. <laughs>
3: Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. You'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's
1: 877-472-1227. And thanks so much.
3: As a young girl in the suburbs in Connecticut,
0: Sharon Robinson remembers watching the civil rights movement take root. I found it frightening. I found it exciting. And I sort of envied these kids that they had each other. And they were part of something bigger than themselves. The only daughter
3: of baseball legend Jackie Robinson this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 today on GPB, gpbnews.org and on the GPB apps. Cody Hall, um, I want to take just a minute. Sure. Yesterday we did an entire show about education, and we talked about a lot of aspects of Georgia education. We talked about places where there's been improvement, graduation scores, test scores up a bit. Um, We talked about your boss attempting to close the pay gap by, uh, you know, finding uh, money for the $5,000 pay rate. So there's a lot of stuff that I think accrued. Uh, to either being neutral about it or uh, in favor of what you all are doing. But it is also true that we talked a lot about Common Core and and the governor's attempt to disassemble it. And I'm, I don't think – I think the entire panel said we don't quite understand why Governor Kemp wants to get rid of it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it today, but I said on the show yesterday, well, Cody Hall's here tomorrow. Let's ask him. <laughs> Common Core – It was started by a Republican governor, Sonny Perdue, and his colleagues on the Republican Party as well as Democrats, and it seems to have had some value in terms of helping us measure against student progress here against other states. Why is Governor Kemp now really moving more aggressively to eliminate Common Core? Well, I think,
3: number one, it's because after two years on the campaign trail, he heard a lot of parents and teachers and students that don't like those current standards in our current education system. Um, so whenever you hear that from the folks that, you know, a record number of Georgians voted for Governor Kemp to be the next governor, um, you have to take that into consideration. Um, regardless if if past good ideas well, didn't really age well, um, you have to take that into consideration. And the Department of Education under Superintendent Woods Um, had previously started a process on a couple of the other subject matter areas um, to review standards. And that's what we're buying into now, that, look, um, we want to get students, we want to get teachers, we want to get community members in rooms talk through what the current standards are. Um, Are they working for the folks in your community? And if not, let's look at a way to improve them. Um, And that's why there's a multi-tier, kind of laborious process to get there. It's
1: very complicated.
3: Right. Um, But I will say that, Education is a priority of this administration. So, if this process is the best way to get to a better education for kids in our schools, then let's do it.
1: All right. One other quick note, Jen. One of the things that the panel talked about yesterday was the fact that uh, from Joe Frank Harris to Zell Miller to Roy Barnes, there were governors who had big visions for how to reform education in the state not all of their plans uh, were uh, uh, greeted uh, uh, positively not everything worked but but there were th- three governors in a row who really were moving it made education one of the biggest priorities of their administrations. And then things started to change under Sonny Perdue, under, and Nathan Deal was not able to get QBE uh, uh, turned around, unfortunately. Uh, so it wasn't quite the priority for him. And despite what Cody says, I don't think we've heard that the Kemp administration, the pay raises are great, but I don't think we've heard a big vision for how we can make uh, education better in Georgia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I mean, look, the, the teacher pay mm-hmm. raises, that's great. But um, And I think that Governor Kemp and his administration and probably his campaign understood that teachers are the leaders in this state. I mean, throughout Georgia and outside of metro Atlanta specifically, um, they are the people that – you know, teach folks. They're the leaders. They're they're in the community, and they're the they're the ones that kind of push policy. So I think every governor, Republican or Democratic, has learned that you've got to be a little bit careful yeah, um, when you're dealing with education policy, yeah. and to make sure that the teachers are on board. Because at the end of the day, if they're against you, you're going to have some problems. Uh,
1: Roy Barnes learned that lesson well when he saw sought reelection. Uh, just to put a period on this and move on. Um, that is one of the conclusions the panel reached yesterday. We had, we had some really smart people educate, who understand education here, was that in the long run, you can have all the reform plans in the world, but what it comes down to is how the teacher teaches in the classroom, how they work with students. That's where improvement is going to take place, not the big grand plans quite often, Patricia.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, I also happen to have listened to the show yesterday as oh. a podcast. So <laughs> okay. I thought a really important point that was brought up is that the teachers can only do so much with what the children are bringing to them. Yeah. If they are coming from a home in poverty, a home without um, a lot of supervision, if bo- one or both of their parents are working multiple jobs, um, if they're hungry. If, if they're not safe, if they don't feel safe, if they're distracted, if they should have been diagnosed early on with a learning difference and never were because their parents couldn't pay for the testing, there's so much that parents, that teachers cannot do, yeah. um, but they're the only ones we have. Yeah. And so they are so important. And any parent will tell you that those teachers are just your lifeline to the future and yeah. your children's lifeline. So I think to, to pay them better, every Georgian would get behind Kemp. That may have been the biggest reason that got behind count.
1: One last word on this and I'll move on. Cody. Sure.
3: So I, I would caution people that are saying that there's not more out there that, um, we've only been in office nine months, but in those nine months, we've passed the largest teacher pay raise in state history. We've put mm-hmm. almost, well, $70 million into school security grants so that every school has $30,000 to beef up their security, and we've doubled funding for mental health in our
1: high schools to deal with some of the issues
3: that Patricia okay, was
1: mentioning. fair enough, fair enough. Um, it, let's uh, turn to another subject. Uh, Jen, I, I said at the top of the show, you've been involved in the uh crisis, I think is a fair word to use here. The uh, plant up there in Smyrna, which uses ethyl- ethylene oxide to sterilize medical uh, equipment, and uh, the, the release of which is... V- is toxic for the environment around the plants. What EPD felt for a while that Sterogenics was getting in line then we learned surprisingly that there was a leak that they never reported. They had to evacuate the plant. Where to th- and now you filed a lawsuit. Talk about what that means.
0: So the lawsuit specifically, look, right after it basically came to light um, about sterigenics and about the ETO emissions, Um, almost immediately EPD entered into a consent order or agreement with um, sterigenics to say, okay, well, this is what you can do to fix things. The problem with that is that that was all based on what sterigenics was representing um, to EPD. And um, there was no real vetting. And it's kind of one of those things where they're like, you know, just trust us. We're going to fix the problem. And this is how we're going to do it. You know, wink, wink, nod, nod. And, um, and I think EPD um, and the governor's office, I think that they took sterogenics at its word, mm-hmm. that it was being transparent. It was trying to do something. Um, they entered into the consent order. And then now we know that actually sterogenics wasn't being transparent, and that they didn't reveal or disclose a lot of things that are incredibly troubling. And so, but with respect to the lawsuit, all it does is, under the rules and regulations of EPD... Before you can enter a consent agreement or order like the one entered, there has to be a 30-day time period where the public can comment, where there can be an open hearing, where the ideas can be vetted to say, yeah, that makes sense or no, that doesn't, to actually have the scientific community jump in. And, and so really all the lawsuit does is to try to invalidate the order or the agreement um, to allow the Kemp administration to kind of have um, a do-over. Um, I think, you know, what I've been saying is now that we know more, we can do better.
1: Cody, you were caught flat-footed. I mean, and I don't—I'm not suggesting it was your own fault, but you were as surprised as, the, as everybody who picked up the paper— and as Jen Jordan was, to read that there had been a, a, an evacuation of the plant that they never reported to anyone. I believe I'm right in saying that. And it does feel, if I'm correct, I've been reading reports out of your office that that did give you some thought about recalibrating how you're going to approach sterigenics. So, I mean, it
3: absolutely was very unfortunate um, because, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and sterigenics did have a meeting with the governor and that did not come up. Right. Um I will say that the reason why we believe that, that the consent agreement is the correct way to go is because there are legally binding ways to ensure that those emissions come down. Now, I'm not an attorney or or one as accomplished as um, my colleague over, um, on, the, on, the other, on the other side of the table. Yeah, you don't board, want to mess with Jen say, Jordan about right, the law. <laughs> I, I will say um, that if her lawsuit was to go forward, that consent agreement would be kind of tossed out the window and then the company would not be held um, to try to lower their emissions um, like we're trying to get them to do. But I will say that through this consent agreement, um, we are going to be able to negotiate a new permit through EPD with um that will hopefully allow um, the state um, to have a little bit more um, kind of teeth on the bones there um, to ensure that we're protecting not only businesses, but, but also families.
1: All right. Let me, Jen, let me give you just a chance to respond to what Cody just said, and then I want to get you into this too, uh, Patricia.
0: Look, I mean, part of the thing is that we can toss the consent agreement or order that exists now, and they can go right back to it. Um, and actually have an open process because Sterigenics has now announced that it's going to completely stop operations until the beginning of October, which they had said before they couldn't do for any number of reasons. And now all of a sudden they've turned around and said they can do it. And just amazingly, all of this is going to happen before EPD's testing starts. So you have to start to wonder what's really going on here. So if they're already going to be shut down till October, this is easy, right? All you got to do you throw the the existing order or agreement kind of to the side, you sit back down at the table, and you negotiate a deal that is actually going to be beneficial to so the people. Patricia, the can
1: I put this in? A, let me put this in a, a much larger context. This is all playing out in our state, in our community, and we have other pro- environmental issues in other parts of the state as well that, at some point, we really want to dig into a little more. But it's playing out in the environment in which the Trump administration is undoing every environmental regulation it possibly can, in which there is an argument really going on at the national level about whether um, how much attention we have to be giving to environmental issues or whether business has to prevail. And, you know, I think on the national scale, there are a lot of Republicans, a lot of business people who who are thrilled that Trump is Helping them avoid all these regulations, but here, here it comes home, and we have a Republican administration in the governor's office. It and I, there's a, there's I'm, I don't even know what my question is, except I'm laying out what I think is a an odd sort of environment right now.
2: Well, I, I, it you know cost, what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. It costs businesses a lot less to not have to prove that they're doing it right. Uh, the Trump administration is very will, interested, willing, very up front that says, we consider this red tape. If there's a problem, we'll know about it because the companies will tell us. Um, But this is when national politics all becomes local very quickly. If it's Flint, if it's something like Stereogenics, I've never seen a controversy like this pop so fast locally onto the front page of the Atlanta paper and stay there. Uh, And it's because the company has not been transparent. Um, Governor Kemp, I think, uh, got on it, Pretty quickly, but we still have no information, no reliable information about how is the air quality. What does this mean? If you live, these color-coded maps come out. It's like red, orange, yellow. If you live in yellow, are your children going to get cancer? It's very, very scary for people, and it's a densely populated metro area. Yeah. Um, I've spoken with a number of people, obviously who live there, but then also there are twenty schools in this area affected. 20 schools. Independent testing costs $650,000. And the number of companies with the expertise is extremely limited. And so are you going to rely on EPD's numbers, the company's numbers? It's very scary for people who live there. And there is very little reliable information. And frankly, a lack, I think, of leadership that feels like it's really going to take the company to task. I do think that Senator Jordan is the loudest voice on behalf of that community right now.
1: Um, although we are being told most recently, I think that it's the businesses in the immediate vicinity of of the plant that are, are in the most jeopardy. There was a when you look at all those color coded uh, maps, I, I think the governor's mansion itself was in one of the uh, zones that could have b- have been impacted, Cody. But uh, speak to that uh, a, a Washington Republican administration that seems to downplay uh, concerns about the environment and a Republican administration in Georgia, which is very close and very attached to President Trump, uh, should we... Sh- how do you deal with those sort of contrasting notions of what you do in a situation like this? Well, I mean, our top
3: priority is always going to be to make sure that if, it, if companies are emitting X, Y, or Z, or whatever the chemical may be, that it's within um, the required guidelines by state and federal law, and that we're ensuring that... Um, to, to the best of our ability, um, no one is being negatively impacted by these emissions. Regardless of the politics, who's in the White House, that's
1: our top priority. Okay, let's do this. Let's get, it, get another... Oh, go ahead, Jen. It,
0: but the problem is because the Trump administration has, has not been on top of this, with respect to the federal regulations, they're still based on the fact that ethylene oxide isn't a carcinogen. Yeah. So under the federal guidelines or the state guidelines, um, sterigenics can pump thousands and thousands of pounds of ETO into the atmosphere, and we know that isn't acceptable. So it's not an okay thing just to say, well, look, what are we going to do? I mean, they're in compliance with, with federal EPA regs. It's because EPA hasn't done anything. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is a real opportunity for leadership for the Kemp Well, and that's
1: why what Patricia says is, I think, particularly pertinent. Uh, here you suddenly find an environmental issue that gets to the local level quickly and stays in the news. And people do care about the environment, um, despite some of the feelings in the administration about how, the, how businesses ought to be able to move independently. Let's get another break out of the way and come back. We still got a couple of stories I really want to get to, and we'll do that after a few messages.
3: I'm Sarah Amman. I own Out of the Blue in Blue Ridge, Georgia. We specialize in wines from around the world and high-end cheeses. And we also have craft beer. I think a lot of people that listen to GPB, it's just part of their day-to-day routine. I have people coming up from Atlanta just to see what Out of the Blue is all about because they hear our ads all the time and they say so.
0: To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org.
3: On the next Fresh Air, breaking the Harvey Weinstein story. We talk with New York Times reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy. In their new book, She Said, they write about their investigation and the people and practices that protected Weinstein. They also reveal new details about what Harvey's brother and business partner, Bob, knew about Harvey's behavior. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
1: Cody Hall, we're going to spend more time talking about this tomorrow, but because you're here today, we have to at least mention it. Um, your boss, the governor, has um, re-energized uh, a task force committee. I'm not quite sure what words you want to use to describe them to make sure that uh, Georgia gets a full count in the 2020 census, which is interesting, of course. Because once again, the difference between how you're approaching an issue and the way the Trump administration, as we believe, because of Wilbur Ross and all the trouble over the citizenship question, that perhaps the administration is trying to suppress the immigrant community from being counted for whatever reason. It appears that what your boss is talking about is making sure he's going to start a campaign to make sure that every single uh, person in the state is counted regardless of any factors that might uh, uh, be in the mix.
3: We're going to follow the law. Um, and that's why on this committee we have Republicans, we have Democrats, we have folks in between. Um, we have a member of well, Fair Count, one of Stacey Abrams' groups on there, to ensure that this is a nonpartisan process. Um, and we also, we actually did ask Miss Abrams to be on it, but she pointed us
1: to someone else at, at, at Fair Count. Um, so, yeah. Um, So one of the questions I would ask you about that is um, you've hired Theron Johnson and uh, uh, Lori Geary. Lori's going to be on the show tomorrow, so we'll get into a little bit more with her to handle the communications effort on this. Um, Does this mean that the Kemp administration is committed to, in their communications, assuring immigrant populations in this state, that they have nothing to fear whether they're legal or here undocumented in answering the questions? And are you are you hoping that whether they're here legally or are undocumented, they will be counted? We're going to continue to follow
3: the, the guidelines that are coming out of the federal government, which is, as you just spoke to, um, that's why we have a diverse group of people. Um, we want to hear from all um, areas of the state undercounted previously or historically, um, and that's why we have such a diverse group of people. But I will say that this news was also well bookended today and yesterday with um, the notification that our state is being ranked the number one state for business for, for the sixth year in a row. So I just wanted to get that plug out of the way because oh, that's the press conference why, I just came from,
1: Bill. Why, that's right. I, I know that you're very proud of that. And uh, and so I'm glad you at least were able to mention that. <laughs> uh, Jen, it's great that there's an actual bipartisan group working on this issue. That's a seems to me a good sign coming out of the Kemp's uh, administration.
0: Look, the, the census is vital. At the end of the day, um, The state of Georgia as a whole, it's not Republican (laughs) Georgians or Democratic Georgians, but the state of Georgia as a whole, um, it is so important for everybody to be counted because it is linked to so many things in terms of federal funding and the light and funding formulas. And it's really how we kind of go forward. We've added so many people to this state. I mean, I think we're going to have added at least a million people when it's said and done. And we want to make sure that every single one of those people is counted because that's actually going to help us and help the Kemp administration, help the General Assembly, help everybody actually govern in a way that's that's appropriate.
1: I'm hoping tomorrow Lori Geary will will be able to tell us how they're starting to think about what the communications will actually be. Patricia, I want to turn to another story. In a way, I'm surprised you're here and not in Charlotte right now, because the (laughs) 9th Congressional District in North Carolina is holding a crucial election, even as we sit here. The Democrat, Dan McCready, running against the Republican, Dan Bishop. It's a special election. We won't go into the problems that led to this, but... This is a crucial race. Democrats actually think they may have a chance to take a seat in a district that elected Mitt Romney by 12 points and Donald Trump by 12 points. And if that should happen... It is a cataclysmic event in terms of uh, President Trump and the House next year.
2: Yes. Well, the reason Democrats think they could win this is because they almost did win this yeah. in 2018. Uh, Dan McGreevy came, um, Dan McCready rather, came a thousand votes short of winning that race, and there was uh, a a bit of voter fraud that meant that that (laughs) (laughs) on the Republican side uh, that meant that uh, those results could not be validated, which is rather unprecedented and a huge deal for a House race. um, To show how important this is. Donald Trump was in the district last night with uh, the Republican
0: with Bishop uh, yeah. with
2: Dan Bishop, uh, who, although who he has been outspent by about three to one by the yeah. Democrats. So the Democrats have poured a ton into this race so that they can show that if they win. Mm-hmm this is the future. Um, there's a lot of concern among House Republicans that if they don't pick up this seat, it could fuel some more retirements from Republicans looking at retirement. Um, any, any special election has its own idiosyncrasies. This certainly is one of them. Um, but I, I, think it's, I think it's important mostly for the messaging that comes out of it and um, the momentum it would give either side.
1: Well, Messaging, yes, but a, a district that was won by Republicans uh, by 12 points in the last two presidential cycles, uh, if it goes for a Democrat, Cody, uh, it may be a bad omen for Trump's ability to win North Carolina, and that would be devastating to his campaign. I mean, it's always tough to be
3: outspent three to one, um, regardless of what district you're running in. Um, I would say having been on a campaign in recent history. Um, it is not a, an easy environment for Republicans, no matter where you are. Um, so you have to work harder. You have to raise enough money. You have to get your message out. Why isn't
1: it an easy environment right now? You've got the president of there. Now right. you say it's a Republican sitting in the White House.
3: Well, whenever you're running a House campaign, sometimes you don't want to be talking about what's on the front page of your local paper. Um, and <laughs> Well and, said. Go ahead. And because there are a lot of issues that <laughs> voters actually do care about that sometimes is not r- reflected in the media in terms of health care access
1: and other things. Oh, Jen, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fascinating to watch the returns from this race come in tonight. Right now, the polls show it pretty much neck and neck, although it is a, de- a Republican district. So as much as Democrats hope they have a chance here, the most reasonable conclusion will be the Republican ought to be able to win tonight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, part of the issue is, too, is that it's a special election. Yeah. Yeah. And having run in special elections, I can tell you that that there, They do not go the same way um, that your normal kind of midterm or even your presidential cycles go. And it sometimes the money matters. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but, you know, if we even get close, I mean, I think that that really is the message. Because if we get close in a district where Trump won by 12 points, not just Mitt Romney, but Trump. Donald Trump won yep. by 12 points, I mean – we, we've definitely got some momentum going into next year.
1: You know, Patricia, The other, it strikes me that if North Carolina should elect a Democrat and uh, Republicans become more nervous about whether they can win North Carolina in the presidential race, it just makes Georgia even more important to the Republican calculation for winning the White House in 2020.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, North Carolina um, is Georgia probably, you know, two or three years down the road. Democrats would love that to be now. They would love to see that momentum now. Um, this district is also one of those suburban ex-urban districts that Republicans are having a really hard time with and bishop um campaigning with trump last night said there is no better fighter for north carolina than donald trump and there's no better fighter for trump than me he has tied himself to this president and so it will be a referendum on donald trump in that district
1: all right um what a great conversation. We're completely out of time for today's show. But thank you all for a, a really good conversation about some interesting issues in political news today. Patricia Murphy, again, the most recent column in Roll Call is uh, with Washington missing in action, Walmart for president. Uh, Tom, we can put that a link to that up on our social media, right? So Patricia gets even more readers than she thank already you. has. Cody Hall, we you know, we always love having you come in and talk to us from the perspective of what's happening in your office downtown under the Gold Dome. So thank you for being here. Senator Jen Jordan, whether you wanted to or not, I think you made a little news today by saying, yeah, I'd be crazy not to say that, well, you didn't use the term crazy. That'll just get you in trouble. (laughs) But yes, you can't not look at a Senate race next year. We'll be fascinated to watch how that unfolds. But thank you for being here today. Thank you. That's it for us. Uh, we're back again tomorrow at two o'clock. Greg Bluestein will be joining me from the AJC. He's been out there talking to Senate candidates and always has an interesting perspective on what's happening. Until then I'll see it too.